How y'all doing? Is there anyone else that thinks that Thanksgiving meal is a little bit overrated? Like, honestly, I'm not a huge fan of turkey, stuffing. Yeah, they're just not that great. Like, ham? Who likes some ham? Yes, ham is so much better. So who is ready for, like, this semester to just be over? There we go. A lot of you guys. You guys are almost there. You're, like, almost at the finish line for Christmas break, which in college is so much better than high school break. It's so much longer. It feels like another summer break. But there's some of you in here that are working full time, and you're like, yeah, I have no break. I, all I do is work for my life. But I, I get it. I get the feeling at the end of the semester, you're just ready for it to be done. But we've learned a lot together here at Salt Company about who Jesus is. We've been in this Meeting Jesus series, learning who does this Jesus guy think he is? Who do others believe him to be? And so we're going to continue in that series. And tonight, we're going to have three points. We're going to start right away. I'm going to give you guys the three points, those of you that are note takers. Point number one is this, Jesus lifted up. Jesus lifted up. Point number two is Jesus' forgiving love. And then point number three is Jesus, God with us. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 49. And the reason all of our points start with Jesus is because this passage is about Jesus. It's not very complex. This passage is all about Jesus. The whole book of Luke is telling us things about Jesus, but this passage specifically is all about Jesus. As I was reading it, I read the word him, 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 you, you, Jesus said, him, 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 over and over and over and over again. So you guys are going to hear that. It's all about Jesus, but it should be, right? We've learned tons about Jesus during this series. He's the main character. He's the hero of this book. Jesus has come proclaiming eternal life, come proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming. He ate with sinners and outcasts. Jesus healed the sick, cared for the poor. All the people who felt invisible were seen by Jesus. So it should be about him. Imagine this. Imagine if you had a brother who was lame from birth, meaning he couldn't walk. So your entire life, you've had to carry this mat that holds your brother everywhere that you go. And if you don't, then your brother just has to stay at home, be bored out of his mind because there's no video games or anything like that. But he lays at home anywhere that's fun that he wants to go. You have to carry him, pick up his mat, and walk in places. Now imagine you guys hear chatter of this guy, this person that has come into your town who has some sort of ability or gifting to, to heal people. You would do everything in your power to pick up your brother's mat, to run to this person. You'd probably be bumping into people. You don't care. You want to get your brother to this person so that maybe, just maybe, this, this guy could heal your brother. And so you fight through the crowds, and you get to Jesus, and you say, hey, please, my brother's been lame since he's been born. Jesus reaches out and touches this man, and he stands up. 
He jumps. He leaps for joy. For the first time, he looks eye to eye with you. It's incredible. Or imagine you've been blind your entire life, born blind. Your family took care of you for however long that they could, but now your parents are old or they've died or they're sick and they, take, they can't take care of you anymore. But ever since you've been a little kid, you've been sent to the city gates to beg for food, beg for money, anything extra would be nice. You hear kids and children playing all around you, but you have no clue what's fun, how to have fun, why they're laughing. Life is just dark. And it's humiliating because you have to sit at the city gates and just yell, anyone, anything, please, food, money, please. You're embarrassed. But one day, you hear this massive crowd of people, tons of footsteps, tons of people talking. There seems to be a lot of energy and you hear this name, Jesus, over and over again. And you hear people chatting and talking about him as they're coming through the city gates. And this guy has this ability to heal. And for the first time in your life, you feel something you've never felt before. Hope. You feel hope. Some sense of maybe this guy's the answer. Maybe this guy will actually care about me. Because up until this point, most people don't care about me. They just walk by me. I don't have a good education. I can't read. People kind of just feel like I'm a mistake. So they don't, they don't care about me. I don't even know what I'm eating half the time. But maybe this guy, maybe this guy will actually care. And so as the crowds are getting closer, you're hearing more and more footsteps, more and more people. And you begin to, to move around, crawl around the ground, and just yell, Jesus, Jesus. Wherever you are, whoever you are, please. I can't see. And suddenly you, you hear the noise die down. It sounds like there's people all around you. And this person speaks to you, which you're not really used to because people don't talk to you very often. But he seems to spit on the ground, mix up some mud, and put it on your eyes, which seems really strange, and then he tells you to go wash it off. So you do what he says, and as you're on your knees, wiping off your eyes, for the first time you open your eyes, and you see this man in front of you, this man named Jesus. And it's incredible. You understand why people are so happy. You understand why the children have so much fun, and they laugh and play. And tears are just streaming from your eyes. Because for the first time, you can see. These are the types of things that were happening. These are the stories that were happening over and over and over again. Jesus was coming and bringing hope. Jesus was healing. People could see. People could walk. Anyone who had ever felt like an outcast or who had felt poor had been touched by Jesus, and they were healed. Jesus was holy and kind. He was obedient. Jesus showed us that when our worries race at high speed, God will give us what we need. 
Jesus deserved to be lifted up. He's the hero. He deserved to be lifted up on a throne as king, as Messiah. He proved that he was God. He deserved to be lifted up and worshiped because he was God. And it only makes sense that the people would worship him, worship with their voices, worship with their lives. Jesus deserved to be lifted up and glorified. Point number one is this, Jesus lifted up. We're going to see Jesus lifted up as he should be. Jesus should be lifted and praised as king, as Messiah, the one sent to save. The people have seen him heal brothers and sisters and children and mothers and fathers. And so those same people are now ready to lift Jesus up. Look at verse 32, Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Wait, let me make sure this is the right passage. Verse 32, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Not long before this, Jesus was whipped 40 times. Not just with a rod, but oftentimes they had leather straps that had shards of glass at the end of them. So when they whipped Jesus, not only did it rip his skin open, but when they pulled it back, it ripped flesh off his back. Forty times. And then he was put on trial for the people to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Rejected, beaten, and bruised, Jesus was led to the place of the skull with these criminals. They would have stretched his arms out as they readied him to be nailed to this cross. Beams of wood that wouldn't have been smooth by any means would have had splinters coming off of them with his bare back, bruised, open wounded on the cross. The soldiers would have taken these massive nails and, and placed it at the end of his hands so that when they nail it in and they put it up, it actually holds him to the wood, put it in his hands and put it in his feet. One at a time, they nailed it to the rough beams of wood. If you've ever put up a fence post, you know you have to dig a deep hole. And then you have to push the post up and up until it gets to an angle where it drops down. These soldiers would have been lifting this cross, pushing it up and up until it hit a point where it could drop down and it would tug at Jesus' arms as the nails held him there and his feet. Instead of lifting Jesus on a throne, he was lifted on a cross. And the people stood and watched. Look at verse 35. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was put above him. This is the king of the Jews. This is Jesus, 
king of the Jews, lifted up, covered in blood, wincing in pain. Helpless, weak, defeated. They didn't just disagree with who Jesus claimed to be. They hated him. They mocked him. They insulted him. They beat him. They were certainly his enemies. Instead of being lifted up on a throne, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Instead of being lifted up to be worshipped, Jesus was lifted to be mocked. Instead of being lifted up to be glorified, Jesus was lifted to be crucified. Just earlier this week, the people welcomed him with praise, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, welcoming him. It's not supposed to end like this. The disciples were scattered. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him three times. These were his closest friends. Kings were supposed to be praised and adored. Jesus was supposed to be come and be glorified, but instead, he's being crucified. This isn't how the story is supposed to end, right? Can't be. Three times and three different people call Jesus out and say something to the effect of, if you are God, if you are the Messiah, save yourself. Save yourself. Verse 35, the first one. People stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Verse 32, the second one. Then the soldiers mocked him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, the last one, one of the criminals next to Jesus says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us while you're at it. If I'm Jesus, I know what I'm doing. I'm hopping off this cross. I'm healing myself. I'm giving every one of these men what they deserve. I'm giving to them what they deserve, not what I've received. It's the worst when someone disrespects you, isn't it? If you've ever been disrespected, you know how this feels. For me, growing up, I was a pretty easygoing kid. Unless you called me Bud or Buddy. And I did not like that. I hated those terms. For many people, these are endearing terms. If somebody calls you Bud or Buddy, it means they care about you. But in my family, if Bud or Buddy was used, it was usually when me and one of my brothers were in an argument or we were in a competition, and when one of my younger brothers would beat me the once in a hundred times that they would beat me, they would call me Bud. How does that feel, Bud? How do you like that, buddy? I was like, listen here, buddy. You're the buddy. I'm not the buddy. <laughs> it was so annoying. It made me so mad whenever he called me Bud. But why? It was insulting. It was demeaning. It was belittling. I was his older brother. He was supposed to respect me. So I thought. But when he called me Bud or Buddy, it was extremely belittling, disrespectful. They were challenging Jesus in his authority, his power, his status. How would you respond? If you were Jesus in this moment, what would you say? What would you do? Let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 34. 
Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. Point number two is this, Jesus' forgiving love. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. In the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, who is them? Who does them represent? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, who is it? Maybe it's the disciples who were in the garden with Jesus praying. And Jesus said, don't fall asleep lest you fall into temptation. And they all fell asleep. Then these guards came to take Jesus away. And who was leading the pack? It was Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' friends who had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus certainly said, Father, forgive him. Or Peter, one of the most outspoken disciples for Jesus, denied Jesus three times, one of them to a little girl, because he was scared. Jesus certainly said, Father, forgive him. What about the soldiers who grabbed Jesus and spit on him and pushed a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him? Jesus certainly said, Father, forgive them. Or the rulers and the chief priests, the elders and the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders of this day who were supposed to be for Jesus, but they were persecuting him. Jesus certainly said, Father, forgive them. Or the false accusers and those who shouted, crucify him, a week after saying, Hosanna. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Or Pilate, King Herod. Pilate had the authority and the power to set Jesus free. He knew he was innocent. Pilate knew. He said, there's nothing wrong with this man. But his fear of man led to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus certainly said, Father, forgive him. Or what about the soldiers? Soldiers who took those nails, stretched Jesus' arms out on these wooden beams as they nailed his arms to this cross after he was already beaten and bruised. As they did this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. This is the clearest example of love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, earlier in the gospel, says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus did not tell us to do something he was not willing to do. He didn't. It's easy to think, how are you supposed to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? That doesn't really seem to make sense. Jesus, as he's taking nails, says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. These people were the greatest enemies that could ever exist, nailing him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. Let's keep reading. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save us and yourself. But the others answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. As one of the criminals mocks Jesus, the other one rebukes him. He says, can't you see? 
We are the ones that were given what we deserve. He's innocent. This man has done nothing, and yet he's forgiving us. Can't you see? He says, Jesus, I know I deserve death. I know what I've done has earned me death on this cross. This is actually just. But I know that you are the Messiah. I know that you are who you say you are. So please, would you just remember me at least? He confesses his sin and makes a profession of faith towards Jesus, and Jesus forgives him. He says, though your physical body will die today, your spiritual body will be with me in heaven today. Jesus forgave him. This man wanted Jesus' forgiving love. This man knew he needed Jesus' forgiving love. Jesus had already offered it to him. So when the man asked, he says, I've already forgiven you. I've already forgiven you. This is the clearest example of being saved by grace through faith. Is it not? We're told in the New Testament that it's only, you can only be saved by grace through faith. This man had no good works, and he, was, he had no time to do good works. He probably had hours left before he would breathe his last breath. He was strapped to a cross. Jesus didn't save him because of all the things he could offer Jesus. Jesus didn't save him because he was going to be a great worker in the kingdom. He was on a cross. And yet by placing his faith in Jesus, saying, I believe that you are the one Messiah. You are the one who has come to save the world. And you are innocent. I deserve death, not you. Would you forgive me? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. This man, this criminal, would have been at the lowest point of his life, full of shame and guilt. This was a humiliating death. He probably would have been abandoned by all of his friends, all of his family. Anyone that cared anything about this man would have not been here on this day. This man was alone, tired, sad, broken, beaten. And Jesus says, I forgive you. I wonder if any of us in here are like this criminal. Have you gotten to a point like him, where you confess your sin and place your faith solely in Jesus? Have you ever said, Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I deserve death. But would you give me life? Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Would you forgive me? And Jesus takes those who are in their shame and in their guilt and beaten down and broken, humiliated. And Jesus raised this man to a place of honor, saying, you will be with me in paradise, in eternal life. Are you that criminal? If you say those things, Jesus will be faithful to offer you his forgiving love. I promise you. Keep reading in verse 44. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. 
And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest. All who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There's a lot to unpack here. There's darkness. There's this curtain, this veil that has been split. Jesus gives up his life, breathes his last breath. This centurion glorifies God for some reason. How do we make sense of it? Point number three is this. Jesus, God with us. Jesus, God with us. Verse 44 says that darkness came over the whole land until three. This is one of the most significant points in human history. Darkness covers the land as if the sun had failed. Why? Because Jesus took on the sins of all the world. Past sins, present sins, future sins. My sin, your sin. Every lustful thought. Every hateful comment. Every disrespectful attitude. Every selfish motive, action, Jesus took on his shoulders. It's no wonder it was dark. This was a picture of how we are surrounded and covered by the darkness of our own hearts. The darkness of our sin covers us, and it's terrifying. It had to have been terrifying for everyone there. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel like life is dark. Life is heavy, scary because you carry the weight of your own sin, the weight of your own shame, the weight of your own guilt. You carry this on your shoulders and you're just tired. You're tired of it. You came here and you probably have a smile on your face, but deep down you're tired. It's been another long week, another long month, another long semester. Another long day. You're tired. Maybe it's not hard for you to imagine this darkness that covered the land. In verse 45, as we keep reading, we see that this curtain or this veil had been torn. In the Old Testament, the only way that God could dwell with his people was if they remained behind this veil. God is so perfect and holy that if they were to come into his presence, into this room, without a sacrifice, they would die immediately. Because he was so perfect and so holy, and they were sinful. So these veils were created 60 feet tall, four inches thick. This isn't your shower curtain. 60 feet tall, four inches thick was this veil, and it was split down the middle. They signified the separation between man and God. The high priest would enter what's called the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice once a year so that he could atone for the sins of all the people. To atone for something means to amend something. So the relationship between God and man had been separated because of sin, and the only way to recover this relationship was through sacrifice. The only way. Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for all of us. Jesus was the atoning sacrifice once and for all. 
Jesus came to amend or to restore our relationship with God the Father once for all time. That's the significance of this veil, of this curtain being torn in half. Jesus took on flesh so he could take on sin and remove the barrier between us and God. That's why the veil tore. It signified that the perfect sacrifice had been made. God's wrath and justice were carried out on sin. God not only dwells with his people now, he dwells within his people. The veil was torn. So in the midst of this pain and this anguish, Jesus somehow musters up the strength to yell, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And then he breathes his last. He breathes his last. Jesus wasn't just bearing the injuries and the significant bodily damage from being whipped and beaten and a thorn of crowns placed on his head and being nailed to a cross. Jesus was bearing the weight of all sin for all of humanity for all time on his shoulders. And he musters up the strength. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. What's unique about this I think what's interesting why Luke says this is because Jesus offered up his spirit. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave up his spirit. The centurions were not victorious over Jesus. Pilate was not victorious over Jesus. Rome was not victorious over Jesus. Sin was not victorious over Jesus. He offered up his spirit. This moment was so impactful that the centurion says, this man really was righteous. What he was saying is this man really was innocent. He really was perfect. He really had no guilt. Jesus demonstrated in his final moments on the cross that he was innocent. He was perfectly obedient. And he was the only one who could satisfy God's wrath once and for all. Jesus truly was God with us. Jesus was lifted up to be crucified instead of glorified. Jesus offered a forgiving love that saved a criminal even in his last moments. Not because this criminal had been good, not because this criminal could do anything good after this moment, but Jesus had compassion on him. This man saw he was a sinner, recognized that he deserved death, not Jesus, and that Jesus was God. So he asked for forgiveness, and Jesus gave it to him. Jesus showed us that he was God with us. Not only did he show his innocence, but he tore the veil. He removed that which separates us from God, sin. How will you respond to Jesus' radical forgiveness? Will you respond by worshiping Jesus? Will you respond by lifting him up on the throne of your heart? 2,000 years ago, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. Today, we have the opportunity to lift Jesus on the throne of our heart and worship in praise, in word and in deed. How will you respond? He deserves our praise and honor. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness like this one criminal. 
Maybe you need to see that all that your works in life have earned you is death. You're the one that deserved death on the cross. But Jesus took your place. Maybe you just need to confess your sin and ask him to save you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming down in the flesh. Thank you for living a perfect life. Thank you for demonstrating your forgiving love towards us. Jesus, I think it's really, really, really easy to forget about the cross. It's really, really, really easy to forget about what you went through on behalf of us. Jesus, it's really easy to lift anything other than you up on the throne of our hearts. Jesus, I pray that we would respond in praise, respond in worship with our hearts, with our lives, with our actions because of what you did on the cross. Jesus, you didn't have to, but you wanted to. You offered your life as a living sacrifice, God. We praise you. Amen.